If you brought a Bible, and I hope you did, or have access to one, uh, please open it now to the book of Hebrews. We've been going through the book of Hebrews, and today we're in chapter 9. And if you think we're getting close to getting finished, please remember that chapter 11 is full. I haven't really decided what I'm going to do with chapter 11. Depends on how tired I am, I suppose, or how powerfully the text is moving. But this is a wonderful book. I loved every moment of it. And today, we're going to look at this chapter in chapter 9, which talks a lot about the tabernacle. And the tabernacle being a shadow of a, a reality that is in heaven. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant, that is the Mosaic covenant, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to the arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let us pray. Father, I pray uh, this tabernacle imagery 
is foreign to many of us. It's not something we are used to seeing or thinking about. But we know that what it represents is very, very powerful to us. And so we pray, and I pray especially that you give me the ability to communicate the truth today in an understandable way, in a way that people can easily get. But even that said, we know we must have your spirit to empower both the preacher and the hearer to be able to make sense of the truth that we are hearing. And we pray that you would prepare our hearts to feast upon your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are now, as we journey through the book of Hebrews together, sort of arrived at the heart of the book of Hebrews, where we learn the basic message that the way Jesus saves us is through sacrifice. The way that Jesus saves us is through sacrifice. Jesus saves through his blood. In fact, in Hebrews 9.22, it goes so far as to say, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, when modern, or as we heard in Sunday school today, postmodern people hear that message, when they hear a message like I'm going to preach today, it, it makes them have a huge problem with Christianity. When contemporary people hear it said that God requires blood in some way to turn aside his wrath from sin, it sort of sounds offensive to them. Uh, it sounds disgusting. It sounds primitive. It almost sounds obscene. Christianity has sometimes been called, disdainfully of course, a religion of the slaughterhouse. And this doesn't seem to be what we need in a world that's filled with blood and violence. Surely we need, what we really need, is a religion of moral uplift and love. Not a religion of violence and blood, but the book of Hebrews says something to us over and over and over again. There is power in the blood. There is power in the blood. Without the shedding of blood we wouldn't know three things that this text tells us we need to know. Number one, we wouldn't know the depth of our problem. Number two, we wouldn't know the power of God's sacrifice. And finally, we wouldn't know the superiority of Christ's high priesthood. So that is the three pegs we're going to construct the sermon around today. And if you'll listen quick, we'll get through faster. So let's stop it, start at the top. He's talking here about Old Testament tabernacle worship. And he calls it, in verse 11, the tent made with hands. And in that tent made with hands, we see in verse 13, there's no way that you can enter the tabernacle and worship God without the blood of either a bull or goat or calf uh, or ashes of a heifer for the purification of the flesh. All of this means ritual cleanliness. What we're talking about is this. If you want, wanted to go worship God, you didn't casually sashay into the tabernacle, and you didn't casually sashay into the table, uh, into the uh, holy place, and you certainly did not casually sashay into the Holy of Holies, or somebody would have to pick you up and take you out. 
The tabernacle was God's model to communicate to us that he is present in the midst of his people, but that he is a holy God. There is something about him that demands reverence. There is something about him and his holiness that is other than us. God is not totally other, but he's other. And he's the, the creator, we're the creature. He's holy, we're sinful. And so the tabernacle was an object lesson that in order for you to meet with God, in order for you to have communion with God, in order for you to engage with him, things had to be dealt with. Serious, serious, serious things had to be dealt with. It was demanded. And so, as you wanted to go to walk into the tabernacle, if you tried to walk from the entrance of the tabernacle back to the Holy of Holies, that is the place where God's presence dwelled, His Shekinah glory dwelled above the uh, uh, Ark of the Covenant, what you'd have to do is you'd have to pass three altars. There was the first altar in the front, that's the altar of the burnt offering. Then there was an altar of incense, and finally the Ark of the Covenant in the only holy place had a gold slab over the top of it, and that was called the mercy seat on which only the high priest could enter one day a year. That was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. You had to bring the blood of a sacrifice in order for the high priest to go back in there. In other words, there was absolutely no way that you could just walk in and worship. The tabernacle was not a house of worship that you just walked in. Nobody could just go in. You couldn't approach God without blood. You couldn't get anywhere near without blood. And they had to do this over and over and over and over again. What does that mean? And what is this all about? In ancient times, blood had a very negative and a very positive signification. It has both negative and positive symbolic value. But for the moment, I want to talk about the negative, the negative uh, significance of blood. If you had blood gushing out of your eyes or out of your mouth or out of your chest, that's a very bad sign. I mean, if you didn't know that, you should. There's something, <laughs> there's something seriously broken, something seriously wrong, uh, something morally broken, maybe. In ancient times, flowing blood meant brokenness. Another thing blood in ancient times meant was guilt. There are many places in the Bible not only the Bible, but in other ancient literature where the phrase, you have blood on your hands or your blood is on your own head. I remember growing up in the Baptist church, they couldn't get anybody to share their faith. I mean, they wanted us to come to evangelism class and to go out and share the gospel with people. And so one of the ways they tried to get us to do that was tell us that the blood of every person we knew was on our hands. And until we went to, I heard sermon after sermon on, the blood is on your hands. And I'd look at my hands and go, no it isn't. You know, I was a little kid, and it scared me. It scared me because I thought, oh my goodness, i got to go run tell everybody about Jesus, or I'm in big trouble. i got to answer for all these people. And so, in ancient literature, as well as the Bible, these verses are there. Speaking of a responsibility, 
Uh, so you have blood on your hands. Your blood on your is on your own head always meant what? Your guilt. That's what it meant, guilt. Your responsibility. And blood tends to stain. You put all these metaphors together in a place like Isaiah 59 where God says, Your sins have separated you from me and your hands are stained with blood. So what does that mean? Well, it actually says something very powerful. Why are, were there all these blood sacrifices done? You couldn't get near God without blood sacrifice, that is through the tabernacle. Why? First of all, this was your way of learning what is wrong with life on this earth and that it's serious. It is really very, very serious. You see, it's not going to take education. It's not going to take moral uplift, religion, morality, therapy, or social change. It's going to take something much more radical than that to fix us. Because violence and brokenness and woundedness in life is very, very deep. We're not going to be able to fix it with anything less than some solution that is incredibly deep, profoundly deep. And that one thing is the thing that blood offerings meant. The blood offering meant guilt. Yeah. And that word is terrible. The world is terrible, the world is broken, and we are complicit in it, and we're part of it. And a big part of the reason, as you know, why the world is such a bad place to live is because of me and because of you and because of us. We're complicit in it. We're guilty. We're responsible to a great degree for the mess we is in, also known as the status quo. Last of all, the stain. A very important theme in the book of Hebrews is that blood sacrifice meant that something is terribly wrong and that there's a guilt and there's a shame and we cannot get rid of it. We're all sort of like Lady Macbeths. We have damn spots on us and we can't wash them off. We can't get them off because we do it over and over and over and over again. We're doing all sorts of things to deal with our conscience. And nothing seems to work. There is an indelibility about our sense of failure. Notice that word conscience. In fact, the word conscience comes up in the book of Hebrews more than any other book in the Bible. And we're told in verse 14 that one of our problems is we don't have peace in our conscience. We are told that all the animal sacrifices didn't give us peace in the conscience. And even down in verse 22, and at the very end, it says our big problem is an evil conscience. Well, what is a conscience? In the Bible, the word conscience has to do with your self-evaluation of how fit you are for the presence of of other people or someone else. You notice it says, let's draw near getting rid of an evil conscience. It means this, your conscience is, are you fit for the presence of God? Are you fit for the presence of other people? A bad conscience means a profound self-consciousness and sense that you could not survive close examination. A sense that if people really knew the real you, who you are, really knew what was really wrong with you, really knew what is really in your mind, really knew and could fathom the motives of your heart, really knew what you were like, you'd be rejected 
that's conscience. Religious observances, we are being told here, and moral efforts and good deeds will never get rid of a very down deep problem that we have that we're not fit. We're not fit. We're not fit for the eyesight. We're not fit for the presence. We're not fit for examination, so we have to hide. Guilt has to do with what we've done, but shame has to do with what we are. Shame, though it's sort of uh, chaotic, and it's sort of very general and not very, very specific in some ways, is worse because it's a sense of self-consciousness that we could not survive a real close examination, which is how most of us feel at tax time, right? According to the book of Hebrews, this is not just a criticism of Old Testament animal sacrifice. This is saying we're all in that tent made with hands. We're all doing what we can to cover up a sense that we're not what we ought to be. We're all trying to deal with the fact that our conscience is not at rest. We know if people really looked inside, they could really see what we're like. See how weak we are, how wrong we are, how out of kilter we are, how proud we are, how scared we are. We never want people to see that. Therefore, we have bad consciences. We're not transparent. We're all in the tent. There are so many stories in literature that talk about it. Of course, I've mentioned Lady Macbeth, ultimately, whose conscience drove her crazy. And she walked around at night with blood on her hands, not physical blood on her hands, but spiritual blood. It was her conscience. And so as we begin to think about the depth of the problem, somebody out there might be saying, well, wait a minute, hold on. Of course there are people with guilt. There are people who are pathological. But wait a minute, wait a minute, that's their problem. Because we're modern people and postmodern people now, nobody can make you feel guilty unless you let them. Because you decide what's right or wrong for you. You decide. You have to determine your own standards. You can write your own script. You can march to the beat of your own drummer. We're modern people. Nobody has to make you feel guilty. You don't need to feel guilty. And yet, and yet, they still feel guilty. Franz Kafka knew that better, knew better than that. There's a cryptic place in Kafka's diary where he essentially says, the state in which we find ourselves today is sinful, though quite independent of guilt. We feel sinful, but not guilty. Most biographers know what he was doing. He was saying something cryptically. But here's what he was saying. He's saying we modern people have lost the category of guilt because we're relativists. We're talking about relativism in Sunday school today. Relativism is being absolutely sure that no one can be absolutely sure about anything. But in our relativism, we think we've gotten rid of guilt. Who's to say what's right? Who's to say what's wrong? You have to decide what's right. You have to decide what's wrong. But we can't get away, we can't get away from the shame. We cannot get rid of shame. We cannot get rid of a sense of condemnation. We cannot get rid of the sense of self-recrimination. We know it's guilt and shame are real down in the core of our heart. If everything is relative, it's really true that there's no divine transcendent power above you which, by which you are to be judged, 
Sure, there's no guilt, of course. You're free, but then nothing matters. It has no meaning. When you die, you rot. When the sun dies, everything goes away, and in the end, it makes not a bit of difference whether you're a nice person or a cruel person for the rest of your life, because in the end, it's not going to make any difference. Guilt is the last possible link we have any, with any assurance that we have significance. If you want to get rid of guilt, fine. The price of getting rid of guilt is significance and meaning in life. Life has meaning. And if you're not an accident and you were made for a purpose, if you're made in the image of God, then you need to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself and keep the golden rule. But we have a problem with guilt. So we do have a problem. We have an enormous problem. It's deep. It's irresistible. It's indelible. And it will not go away and we can't get rid of it. And we can't fix it. Now if I went home now, you'd be in a fix, wouldn't you? Hopefully I preached you into a corner. Let's talk about the power of God's sacrifice. Just as I said in ancient times, blood has very negative connotations. At the same time, also, blood has very positive symbolic value. An incredibly positive symbol because blood represents the life. There's no life without blood. By the way, if you've ever seen a baby born, which I have, and I guess... Most of you had a mother, so she saw it. But there's a lot of bloodshed. Lots and lots and lots of blood when babies are born. Born through the shedding of blood. Life doesn't even come into the world without the shedding of blood. Most of all, the shedding of blood. If the blood represents the life when it's voluntary, it means the redemptive power of self-giving and the redemptive power of self-sacrifice. You know, uh, when we think about Christ shedding his blood on the cross, we have to ask ourselves, well, what if his blood was shed for me? That's what the Bible says is the meaning of history. The ancient gods were always asking for a blood sacrifice, and that was barbaric. I remember Agamemnon, who was trying to get to Troy. I watched this on Netflix or something. It was, a, it was about a C-level movie. But I watched it because I wanted to see the most beautiful woman in the world, Helen of Troy. And I have to say the actress they needed to recast. She was not the most beautiful woman in the world. But Agamemnon was trying to get to Troy, but he had offended the goddess Artemis. And so she sent contrary winds so that he could get to Troy. They had taken his wife away. So what did he do? Well, the oracle said, Artemis will only be appeased in her wrath if you sacrifice one of your daughters. So he does a human sacrifice, and he sacrifices Iphigenia. He sacrifices his daughter, and then Artemis' wrath is assuaged. Is that what we're talking about? Like the God of the Bible? Seems like it. And if that... If, 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 if that's the God of the Bible who demands our blood, not at all. No. Because the whole point of this passage, the whole point of the Bible here in nine, chapter 9, verse 12, where it says Jesus entered once for all, not by the means of somebody else's blood like every other high priest who had ever lived. Jesus entered carrying his own blood. 
The book of Hebrews, as we've been looking at for several weeks, says Jesus Christ is the creator. Jesus Christ is the one through whom the world was created. Jesus Christ is the very image and embodiment of the glory of God. And so what we have in the Bible is, is not just some religious offering. It's the very opposite of the old religions. And this is the opposite. Here you have not a God who demands blood from us, but offers his own blood. He tells us that in Acts chapter 20. Actually, it says it this way. The church of God, which he has purchased with his blood. And you say, why would he have to do that? I mean, if God wants to forgive, why can't he forgive? What about, what's all this blood stuff all about? And you know, a person who helped me see this in greater focus uh, was a person named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he said, well, if God wants to forgive, why blood? Why can't he just forgive? And Bonhoeffer, the great martyr who died resisting Hitler, helped this way. Understand better than anybody for a long time. He said, if you've ever really forgiven somebody, if you've ever really forgiven some wrong, you have suffered. All forgiveness is suffering. And you say, I forgive, but I didn't suffer. That wasn't that serious of a wrong then. But if you've ever really, really, truly, deeply been wrong, Bonhoeffer says, and you have forgiven it, you have suffered because all forgiveness is a form of suffering. That's why we don't like to do it. That's why it's so hard to do. All forgiveness is a form of suffering. Why would that be? Well, think about it. If somebody has truly wronged you deeply, there's an indelible sense of debt and injustice, a feeling that you just can't walk away from and shrug off. Once you sense this deep injustice, this debt, only two things can happen. One is you can find ways to make the perpetrator suffer and pay down the debt, or the other thing you can do is forgive. See, if you make the perpetrator pay, there's one problem with that, and it's a huge problem, and that is the evil done to you passes into you, and you become cruel and hard and bitter, and you become evil too, and that's a big problem. So what's the alternative? The only alternative is not to make the perpetrator pay, but to forgive. When you forgive, you begin to realize what it means to forgive. It means not only not making the perpetrator suffer, but not slicing the perpetrator's reputation up to other people, not even sticking pins in that person in your own heart and hating that person in your own heart. In other words, do you know what forgiveness really means? If you really try to forgive so the evil doesn't fall into your own heart, you will suffer. It is agony. It's thorns. It's nails. It's a cross. But get this. If you do the incredibly hard work of forgiveness, which always means suffering, only then would you have the possibility of confronting that person, not for the sake of vengeance, but for the sake of God. The only possible way will ever keep that person from getting worse is to forgive deeply, deeply, deeply in our heart. And do you know what that means? When wrong happens, even to you, even with our undeveloped understanding of justice, either the person suffers or you suffer. But somebody's got to suffer. How much more 
with God, whose understanding of justice is perfect, and who sees us destroying one another and destroying his creation. When he looks at our sin, there are only two things that can happen. He can judge us, and then we suffer, or he can forgive us, and he suffers. He pays the debt. When you look at the cross, you see cosmically, infinitely, and in history, something every single human being, even the worst human being, even the most flawed human being knows in his own heart because forgiveness is real suffering. This means on the cross, Jesus came. God in the flesh came. He did not come to inflict more violence and evil in the world, but rather to absorb it without paying it back so he could destroy the power of evil and some, someday without destroying us he paid the penalty for our sins what kind of God would you want what other kind of God could you believe in I could my, never believe in God if there were not a cross in a world of pain could you worship a God who is immune to it no he died for you he shed his blood for you and this brings us to the last point and I know people get a little nervous when we start talking this way and they say, oh no, don't talk about blood and the sin and the cross. I like to think of Jesus as an example. I like to think of him as a teacher of love. I, I like to think of him who will give me an ethical principle that I can conform my life to. But the whole point of this passage is to say this. Religious observance, good works, staying in the tent, doing everything you can to wash, up, wash off that damned spot, doing everything you can to finally get a sense that I'm okay, to cover up the sense of failure, the sense of not living up. Staying in the tent will never work. Emulating Jesus will not work. Animal sacrifices will not work. The only thing that will put your conscience, your self-knowledge, your self-image at absolute and complete rest is to know that Jesus loved you enough to do this. He didn't want to take it out of your hide, so he took it out of his own hide. Forgiveness. There's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And shedding of blood is the ultimate suffering. He gave his life. It is the blood of Christ that utterly transforms us. It transforms us subjectively inside. And it transforms us by saving us objectively. Um, Christ has perfected those for all time who are being sanctified. And the word sanctified means to be set apart. It means in spite of the fact that we're flawed, in, in, in spite of the fact that our sins have been put away and we can now stand in the presence of God. That's what it says at the very, very end. Let us draw near to the throne with full assurance with our evil conscience put aside because of the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, um, I read a... a I wanted to talk about the motives of your heart because I think that's very important. There's a very interesting place in Hebrews in verse 14 when it says, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish, purify your conscience from what? Dead works. Notice it doesn't say from bad deeds, it doesn't say from sins. 
Well, of course it does, but get this. It's very, very interesting. It doesn't say the, uh, the blood of Jesus Christ, though it does. Um, some other places say that. Here it doesn't say you're cleansed and by repenting of your bad deeds. It says you're cleansed by repenting of your good deeds that led to death. See, the dead works here are religious observances. The dead works were the religious observances that could never deal with sin. Why would it say that you need freedom just from sin? You need freedom from your good deeds. This is the secret to transformation. What is the difference between a Christian and a Pharisee? A, a Pharisee is a moral person, a religious person, a self-righteous person, a person who's always, you might say, in the earthly tent, always doing good deeds, trying to deal with the senses. They're not quite what they ought to be. They have that sanctification gap. And therefore, they're never satisfied. They never feel like they're good enough. What is the difference between a Christian who is absolutely rest in his, at rest in his conscience or her conscience and absolutely sure of God's love and a Pharisee. It's the difference that the, is it the difference that Christians repent of their sins? No, Pharisees repented of their sins. When they do something bad, they repent. The difference between a Christian and a Pharisee is not that the Christian repents of their sins, but the Christian repents of the reason for his or her good deeds. A Christian is somebody who looks back and says, this is how you become a Christian. This is how motivational change happens. You look back and say, it's not just the wrong things I did, the bad things, uh, the reason I did good things. It is uh, sorry for a moment, I lost my place. I'm sure some of you never do that. So I beg your forgiveness. You'll have to suffer while I find my place. <laughs> if you're listening, you know what that means. I did good things, and those good things I did are going to be my Savior. The real reason I do good things is if I live like this, God will bless me. But the gospel is God has accepted you through Jesus Christ. Now you can live this way. In religion, you do good deeds really hard out of fear for yourself, not for God, and not out of love of God, but a desire to control God. But the gospel, if you understand the gospel, it absolutely changes you inside. It takes the law and it writes it on your heart. The law of God, things that he wants you to do, don't just become things you have to do, but become things you want to do. Now, not the things you have to do in order to get control of him, but things you have to do because you want to please the one who did this for you. Not the things you have to do to avoid condemnation, but the things you want to do to please the one who died rather than lose you. That's incredibly different from religion. John Newton, in one of his hymns, said this. Listen carefully. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. In other words, what before I was a Christian was an onus, a duty. Once I saw the beauty and glory of Jesus became to me a delight. The motivational core of the heart has been changed. Finally, I close with an illustration. I love this illustration. Billy Graham, in 1955, I was two years old. 
In night, I remember this well. Uh, in 1955, and he was a very young man at this time, was invited to come to Cambridge University in England by a little group of Christians at Cambridge to come and preach to the whole campus, the whole student body. And Billy Graham, of course, said yes. This was November of 1955. He was pretty astounded, too. Guess what? So were a lot of other people. Because the Times of London began to run articles, and it was filled with letters and columns saying how horrendous this was that someone like Billy Graham was coming to their elite university. One of the letters said something like this. I'm sure Billy Graham is a very sincere person, but he's a fundamentalist. He's taken all the fun and mental out of Christianity. Uh, he's a person who believes you have to be saved through the blood of Jesus. And fundamentalist Christianity is bad for us. And besides that, it will never have an impact on the elite young men and women of Europe. But Billy Graham, in spite of that, decided he was going to go, but it freaked him out a little bit. I mean, reading all this stuff, it intimidated him. So he prepared eight messages that he was going to preach at Great St. Mary's, which is the central church, only 8,000 students at that time, and 2,000 every night for eight nights packed St. Mary's out. So he, he, he prepared these incredibly brilliant talks, very different from what he usually wrote, very erudite, very intellectual. In fact, he said in one place that he thought he had to preach like John Stott if he was ever going to come to Cambridge. The first three nights, the place was packed out, and nothing happened. Nothing. He could tell nothing happened. They were mostly students there, but there were a lot of Cambridge dons, that is, faculty. The faculty was there. Everybody was sitting, and there was not much happening. On Wednesday, Billy Graham threw away his prepared messages, and he said this, I'm just going to tell you what I know about the cross of Jesus Christ. Dick Lucas, who was there at the time in 1955, says something like this. I'll never forget that night. I was in a totally packed chancel, sitting on the floor with the Regis Professor of Divinity sitting on one leg and the chaplain of the college, who was a future bishop, on the other. Both of these were very good men, but completely against the idea that you needed salvation from sin by the blood of Jesus. So dear Billy got up that night. This is the night he'd thrown away all these intense, prepared messages. And he began at the book of Genesis, and he went right through the whole Bible and talked about every single sacrifice you can imagine. And the blood was just flowing all over the place, everywhere for three quarters of an hour. Dick Lucas says, both my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked, everything they dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, Billy Graham dismissed the audience, invited anyone who wanted to stay behind and make a commitment to Christ. And that night, to everyone's shock, 400 young men and women stayed. Cambridge undergraduates and graduates. Dick Lucas remembers meeting a young curate, a brilliant young Cambridge student who went into the ministry and he talked to him several years later and he said, where did the Christian thing begin for you? And he said, oh, in Cambridge in 1955. And he said, where? He said, at a Billy Graham mission. What night? It was Wednesday night. How did it happen? He said, I don't know. All I do know was when I walked out of there that night, finally I realized Jesus Christ died for me. 
He'd been a good person. But that night, the blood of Christ wrote all that on his heart. He had known Jesus as an example, but never as a Savior. And that night, his life was transformed. He essentially says, it was unbelievable to the dons around me that a man like that, preaching a sermon like that, could have totally changed the lives of young men and women like that. But it did so because the blood has power. It has power. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ. And we know it has power. We know it's offensive. We know it offends the intellect. It offends the sensibilities, especially of contemporary people. Yet it continues to change lives as nothing else can. And to orient the conscience as nothing else can. And to bring peace and love and delight where nothing else can. So we pray, Father, you would help us go and learn what this means, that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And we pray now that as we continue to worship you, we will give as blood-bought, blood-redeemed sinners. In Jesus' name, amen.